today's episode. It's very, it's lucky times for writers. And why? Because at the core of the writing experience, just like at the core of the reading experience, is loneliness, right? Almost all of your reading you're doing by yourself. Sometimes it'll be allowed to someone which is very intimate. It's why it happens like between families and like lovers, but not a lot of other circumstances. But mostly you're reading by yourself and that's your own experience. What, the thing you find the most joy, the find that horrifies you the most, that's all lonely. And also writing is like that. You can have companions and you can even sit next to someone and write, but you can't say what should the next word be and have four people all decide together. It has mm -hmm. to be lonely. And these are such lonely times. We're all cooped up with lonely times. And I think it's a great time to remember that loneliness is at the heart of literature. And so if you're lonely right now, you're participating in a long literary tradition. Use your loneliness, savor it a little bit mm -hmm. to help you with your book. Welcome to the Modern Author Podcast. Your host, Eric Custer. Eric Custer. A series of unfortunate events. It's a book series that many people have heard of. Uh, in fact, if you have children, you've probably seen your kids reading it. And it's gone on to become one of the most beloved children's classics uh, and the series that many, many kids read uh, in school and libraries and beyond. But did you know that the author behind this one was a pen name, a pen name Lemony Snicket? And the author behind that one happens to be a guy named Daniel Handler. Now, what's interesting about Daniel is that Daniel, or, Daniel wasn't a parent. Uh, he didn't work in education, and yet he had this passion for telling a story that would go on to become a series of unfortunate events that has been made into a movie and a series on Netflix. So what was it about Daniel that made him this author, that made him successful? It's really that he tried to figure out the craft of authorship. He learned, uh, he realized that he was going to have to be authentic to himself, and quite honestly, Daniel had to figure it out as he went. And that's why I think this conversation is so fascinating. It's interesting to hear how Daniel had to trust himself. He had to learn along the way. Everything from how he decided to take notes and organize his thinking into how he structured that and used the dining room table as the muse that would oftentimes structure many of the books that have become beloved. I think for any of us as authors, what I love about Daniel is the fact that he is authentically himself in how he writes, but most importantly, realize that why we write might be more important. And if you have a passion for something, something you're committed to, it's important to get it out there, share it, and let the world happen. I love this conversation, and as someone myself who's had the good opportunity to write a children's novel, um, something not quite yet at the stage of Lemony Snicket yet, but we hope, um, The Penny Moors was a fascinating experience, and I was fortunate to get to hear from Daniel before I started writing and learned a lot behind it. You'll learn about things like how you use the note card and these ideas of collecting ideas, how you replay those ideas to come in the beloved pieces of it, and most importantly, how to remember that writing can be very lonely. There are ways you can overcome that, but most importantly, you need to get in love with yourself, your butt in the seat, and get a happy writing. Thanks, Daniel, for hanging out with us. I think you'll learn a lot, and I will say to you more than anything, this is a book that my kids love, and I'm thankful to get to hear from one of the authors of that great classic series. Daniel Handler, Lemony Snicket, as you may know him, a series of unfortunate writing events that led us to today's beloved classic. Enjoy. For a lot of folks here that are in this early phase of authorship, writing books and things like that, what people always sort of see the success stories, but you didn't start out, you were writing, but you weren't a writer. 
How did you get into sort of what was that early days like that were the messy part where it was before it was like, wow, this is a thing? I graduated college and I wanted to be a writer and I had a kind of mentor. I had a really good writing teacher in college. When I actually arrived at college, I knew I wanted to be a writer and I signed up for the writing course taught by the really famous writer and I had, and you had to be interviewed to get in and I had a very humiliating interview. And then she said to me, I think I'll let you in the class, but I'm going to assign you, I'm going to give you a poem and everybody is going to bring their poems that they've been assigned on the first day of class and you're going to memorize yours so you can recite it and we're all going to lie down. This is what I remember she said, I'm going to lie down in a field full of leaves. I always remember that phrase, field full of leaves, because it ruins the field and the leaves. Yeah. There was something gross about that field full of leaves. And I felt a little like it was my first day of medical school and I learned that I didn't like the sight of blood. I thought, <laughs> I don't want to do this. Yeah. I don't want to memorize a poem and lie in a field full of leaves. Not good um, for a writer to have that feeling, huh? Yeah. So I just thought, huh, I guess I don't really, I don't want this. So I didn't take that class. And then I met, almost coincidentally, another writer, not famous, Kit Reed. We just lost her a couple of years ago. I still miss her a lot because she really mentored me my entire life. Um, And she taught a class where you wrote 10 pages every week and you gave them to her and you had a 15-minute session alone in her kitchen and she talked Hmm. to you about it. Hmm. That sounded much better to me. (laughs) Yeah, no no feel, no Um, leaves, no nothing. Yeah, and it, it, she, it wasn't about it wasn't about the inspiration because I was a young, eager person and I had plenty of inspiration. It was about writing, hmm. and so when I was graduating college, I said to her, "I need you to tell me if I'm good enough to be a writer." Hmm. And she said, "That's not how it works." Hmm. <laughs> um, and she said, "You should go and write." You said, "You want to write a novel?" I said, "You have an idea. You should work on that novel." And figure out if that's what you like to do. If, in fact, Mm. you like to spend time with paper writing, which was very sage advice. But at the time, I was really resentful. I was like, why don't you just tell me? (laughs) Am I good or am I bad? Just stay me the trouble. Yeah, which when you're like 22 years old, that's how you feel about your future. You're Mm -hmm. just like, why doesn't someone just tell me what's going to happen? And that's, you know, not how the future works. Um, So I, yeah, I had a series of crappy jobs office jobs. And I just took whatever job allowed me the most time to go back to my crummy apartment and write. Hmm. And that's what I did. And I found that I really enjoyed writing. Mm -hmm. I had basically no encouragement. This was um, before the internet was a real thing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anyone else who was a writer like me. I didn't know anyone in my own age who was starting Mm -hmm. out being a writer. The writers that I was aware of were famous writers, basically. And or long dead writers. I was reading a lot of those. And they were my community. I felt I was in a community of thinking about books with other people who were thinking about books. But I didn't feel like I was in a community of publishing or of agenting or Mm -hmm. um, anything like that. I didn't know Mm -hmm. anyone who was in a writer's group. I didn't know any of that stuff. And it was really lonely. Mm -hmm. I had friends and things like that. It wasn't what, from the outside, it wasn't a lonely life. Right. I had no one except my mentor, really, who I could call and say, I worked all day at this paragraph. I stared at it. And I actually think in three hours that I made it worse. (laughs) (laughs) I worked so hard and I know it's worse now. And yeah, and so it was about, it was about eight years total Mm -hmm. of that kind of time. And 
I sold my first novel, The Basic Eight, mm-hmm. for the least amount of money my literary agent had ever negotiated for a work. <laughs> so that was pretty terrifying too, because it was one thing to be lonely and broke and feeling unsuccessful when I hadn't been published, but then it was another to get a publishing contract. Yeah. You're like, oh, I didn't expect a fortune, but yeah. I thought maybe... I would get to take a friend out for dinner or something. Yeah. And so that was that was a kind of even scarier time was to mm-hmm. say, okay, now I'm really watching art meet capitalism and I'm trying to make rent at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was a really spooky time. Mm-hmm. No fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you did start out, did you know that this was going to be like, this genre that was, so you've written in multiple genres, lots of different ways here. Did you expect to be writing in this sort of genre? I guess it was someone called it gothic children's <laughs> literature. Is the, is that, that was a very interesting descriptor, but is, is that where you thought you would be writing? No, maybe a little gothic. I liked, I like dark and spooky things in a book. That's my mm-hmm. idea of a good time. So by the vague category, it's mm-hmm. gothic. But no, I didn't write, I didn't know anything about writing for children. I hadn't really thought of it. It was a kind of writing that hadn't really occurred to me, I think, since I was a child. Mm -hmm. And my first novel, The Basic Eight, is about a high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the time, young adult fiction was not really something that was happening. There was The Outsiders, and there were a Mm -hmm. few other books like that, but there weren't, there wasn't a whole genre of it the way it is now. But my agent was very desperate to try to sell this book, Mm -hmm. and she sent it to a few children's editors who did not want it (laughs) but one of them said to me if you ever want to write something for children you should do that because I think you write about young people and at the time I was working on a mock gothic novel for adults I was interested in writing a novel about something horrible things going on Wuthering Heights but um, a little slightly parodic and I was having a lot of trouble with it Mm -hmm. And one of the troubles that I was having was that the hero of that novel was a young man. I decided to kind of gender switches. So usually it's a lost woman forced into a marriage or otherwise in dangerous circumstances. But I decided I'd flip the gender. So I had this lost young man who probably was me trapped in a castle and all these horrible things were happening. But it wasn't going very well. And the real problem with it is in the Gothic tradition, there's this um, real sense of a lack of agency from the heroine, right? right? Because right. of the way society was set up then. Obviously now everything's fine. Everything's mm-hmm. great in society now. But back then, <laughs> no problems then. Yeah, I can't think of one. But back then in the genre of literature, the women very, had very little agency. They were sent off to marry someplace. They were sent off to live someplace or something like that. And so that's how they got to be trapped and all these things were happening. Mm-hmm. And somehow I was trying to write mine I kept thinking, why doesn't this guy just call a cab and get out of there? And so I was putting the novel aside, which is a horrible feeling. Yeah. Particularly when you haven't had any success as a writer at all. And I had about 50 pages and I knew it was not working at all. And it was a horrible feeling. But as this editor had suggested, maybe you want to write something for children. I began to think, if the hero of this book were a child, then you would know why they were trapped and all these terrible things were happening. And then I said, it should be more than one child so they can all talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And that was where a series of unfortunate events Mm. came from, really. And um, in some ways, it was a blessing and some ways a curse that I didn't know anything about children's literature. There were a lot Mm. of stuff I had to learn. Right. So I I began to read children's books for the first time since I was young, really, and to try to 
to figure a lot of things out. But, mm-hmm. but it was exciting too, because it was an exciting idea to me. And mm-hmm. it was not, it looked not at all successful at the start, which was my prediction. Mm-hmm. But books about terrible things happening to orphans over and over again was like not <laughs> a sure seller. Um, <laughs> but then I began to have it, there began to be a kind of a small cadre of readers who were interested. And that was a really exciting time. Yeah. And so it's one of the things, so it's interesting too, there was a, so a couple of weeks ago, we had a guy named Chris Baluk. He's the, he's Casper baby pants. So he talks about, mm-hmm. he writes music for children, but what he said is I, when I started to realize I was actually writing for their parents, that my music became successful. And I think you have these interesting things in there. You weave these like jokes that kids won't get, but parents will get. How do you think about that balance of, because it is something that as an adult, you can read and enjoy it. And I have little kids, there's like things that they won't get. Do you intentionally think about those things, those little like things you weave in there that are literary references and stuff like that? Or is it just your natural style? Both, I think of it, but I don't think of it from a marketing point of view. I don't Mm -hmm. think that I could do that very well. I think because my taste is often so far from what anyone is interested in that the <laughs> idea that I should somehow corral it into marketability is not something that I do. But I, And then I also think that a strange thing about the kind of books that I write and the kind of things like literary illusions that are in them mm-hmm. is that young people are more likely to go look something up if they don't know it. Yeah. And so... There is a line between the people who get certain kinds of things and who don't get certain kinds of things, mm-hmm. but it's not the line between children and adults. Mm-hmm. It's a line um, of all kinds of things. And it's the same with appreciation. There are really, you have to understand, you have to have a certain level of irony to understand a series of unfortunate events. Mm-hmm. And there are children and adults who have no sense of that irony whatsoever, who say, these books are terrible, horrible things are happening. And if that's your mindset, if you're pre-ironic, even if you're 75 years old, you're not gonna like that sort of thing. So I think that it's, I think it can be very useful to think about an audience, but I don't think you can narrow it down to say, oh, I'm gonna market this over yeah. here. Yeah, so you've got, you are, this incredible character creator. You create these incredible people. Do you have a process that you develop these folks? Is there something that you do in advance or do they spring into your mind or do you base them on people? How do you create humans that you put in these stories? I usually think about a story first and then I figure out to whom that story might make it more interesting, Hmm. if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. In a series of unfortunate events, I remember I just, I had, oh, I want these children to be thrown down an elevator shaft because somehow when I was a child, I learned that was possible. (laughs) I don't, (laughs) to this day, I've never fallen down an elevator shaft. I don't know anyone who's fallen down an elevator shaft, but- um, Tom Cruise, I think in one of the Mission Impossibles probably did, like, so he's the only person I've ever seen. Yeah, I have seen it dramatized, but I'm pretty (laughs) sure that was not a documentary. I'm almost positive. And I wasn't. But I began to think, who would throw children down an elevator shaft, right? I think someone who lives high up someplace. And then mm-hmm. I began to think, oh, a penthouse apartment. That's glamorous. Mm-hmm. And I began to think, oh, after the Baudelaire's have been in so many miserable circumstances, it would be really fun to put them glamorous because you would mm-hmm. think at first that that would be better. Um, and then to think about the tradition of villains and villainesses who are rich and cruel to children and how much fun that is to play around with. And so then the character of Esme Squalor came from all of that. Hmm. And then to think more about her, what kind of past would she have and what would she do and who would she talk to this way and all that kind of became interesting. But it started with who would throw children down an elevator shaft. 
It's a um, question I ask myself all the time now. I think that's... Uh, yeah, no, how can you not? When you're waiting for an elevator to come, not that any of us <laughs> will ever step into an elevator again, but if we were... Yes, <laughs> I will be thinking about that constantly. So now, so you create these characters and then you've had the good fortune, the opposite of the unfortunateness of, of having some amazing actors play some of these characters. Is there, was it for you an interesting experience or was it a hard experience to see actors take what you created and say interpret in their own way? Was there any times where you, how, how did that feel for you as the creator of this one? It was both interesting and hard. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly on the Netflix show where I was very, quite heavily involved for a long time. Mm-hmm. And there's a million decisions being made right. and you get excited about actors and you want them to make their own choices and you want them to have a good time. And yeah. Because the nature of collaboration is that all the artists should be having a good time. Mm-hmm. But it's tough, too. It reminds me of um, when you when someone else like picks the movie or the restaurant or something. And there's a sick of you and you're going out and you're like, it doesn't matter where we go, you pick. And then, and then they're like, I've picked the restaurant where everything's on fire. And, like, <laughs> and so that's the same way. You're like, oh, you're a talented actor. You make your own choice. And then they read yeah. something and you're like, oh, God, that's not what I meant. Yeah, it's interesting, but hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, several of the authors here asked a question that I thought was a good one about this sort of, like Haley and Natalie and Olga all asked a similar question about this balance between dark and funny or dark and humorous behind it, kind of like how you play that that out here. How does that, yeah. is that a natural style for you? Is it something that you've thought about that you were inspired by or, or how do you make that balance work? I think it helps to be raised Jewish in my case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the history of the Jewish people is endless suffering, and right. everyone's laughing about it. Mm-hmm. And my father fled Germany in 1939, and conversations with my extended family were all about suffering, but also mm-hmm. full of joy and laughter. So I think that's where it was baked into me. Mm-hmm. But people talk about a balance all the time between these kinds of things as if everyone agrees about when something is funny or not. Right. And the thing right. is, is, that is not the case. Yeah. And all of us have had the experience of being in a room where everyone is laughing at something, except mm-hmm. you think like, that was horrible. Maybe even offensive or maybe just bad. Mm-hmm. And, and vice versa, mm-hmm. where you think that's hilarious, but you're surrounded by people who are saying that's ghastly. And you have to say, yes, no, of course, mm-hmm. ghastly is what I meant all along. And so I think you have to find in your own work what you think the balance is. You can't, mm-hmm. there isn't some magic formula by which mm-hmm. people will say, that's not funny. Mm-hmm. And certainly I think nowadays when we're in such kind of literalist times in a lot of ways, and certainly there's a social movement of going on where people are looking at things that other people think are funny and deciding mm-hmm. that they're not funny. Mm-hmm. I just think now in particular, you can't decide that there's some person. You can decide how you feel and you can look at your own work and you mm-hmm. can talk to people who are important to you and you can negotiate that but I think when and it's the same with kind of any other artistic balance is Mm -hmm. like there's no artistic balance that everyone agrees on do you when you're writing in this way do you have a particular approach that you do it sounds you're you love the act of writing do when you sit down to think about a new book do you are you an outliner are you someone who writes a bunch of stuff and then figures out where it goes or do you have a particular style that has, has worked for you yeah, it's a very inefficient style that has <laughs> become my method and it changes from time to time. And I'm here 
where I write. So I actually have, I have props I can show. I, I start by gathering that I think have something to do with what I'm doing. Hmm. And I like to literally have them on my desk. So mm-hmm. I'll find maybe a couple of novels that are like what I want and maybe a few things about the subject matter or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I just, and I gather them together and I'm thinking about them. And then I write things down. Um, it's really sad. I write things down in a notebook mm-hmm. in my pocket. And then um, when the notebook is full, I type it up in a document and I do that for a few notebooks and then I print out the document and it looks like this, it looks like all the little individual notes. And then this is super sad. Now I print them out and I tape them to index cards, which I have here <laughs> really sad. And then I move the index cards around on the dining room table, which is part of an ongoing argument between myself and my beloved wife about what the dining room table is for. <laughs> Eat at or to plan novels, at, and and then I write them up into a new document, and then I start mm-hmm. scribbling prose on a legal pad, mm-hmm. and then eventually I type it up into a terrible manuscript, and then I try to make it better, and then I abandon it in despair and hope that a publisher finds it suitable. That's my <laughs> method. So, so you can see it's airtight. There's no room for error. Nailed it. It's a perfect formula. Masterclass it right now. Yeah, but I, for me, what I like most about my method is that it's very portable. Yeah. And so I have no excuse not to do it. I don't have mm-hmm. a magic. My notebooks are the, there isn't one here, but, the, but they're like the cheapest notebooks you can get, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't have anything, there's nothing special about any of the materials that I use. I like to have music going on sometimes, but mm-hmm. I don't let myself say, you cannot start this novel and publish the perfect playlist or anything like that. And I just like the idea that I can get up and do it, that I can take it someplace if I need to. Mm-hmm. Not that anyone goes anywhere nowadays, but... Um, elevator shafts, that's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're oh all falling I could do it at the bottom of an elevator shaft, is what okay. I'm trying to say. And... I think that's a good reminder because I think those of us here in the first world and the 21st century, when there's so much available to us, it can become, it's so alluring and it can become addictive. And the history of literature, the history of people writing things down is vast and long. It did Mm -hmm. not start recently and it did not start with any one group of people. Right. And I think just try to participate in that tradition the way I always have when I've been reading and to to plug yourself into the fact that it's just people writing things down. That's mm-hmm. all that it is. It is mm-hmm. not a grand artistic fortress that you're trying to get into. It's not a canon, you know, a bunch of plaster busts of people who have done it and you're trying to be one of the busts. It's not any of that. It's just people writing things down. So I try to keep that in mind with my method, which is um, low tech and ad hoc. What I love about it, though, is, is honestly, is like you, I think there's a lot of pieces that people can learn from, right? Like in some ways, it's like we talk about, we call book models. Do you have a stack of books that you can just look to for inspiration? And do you, I, I tell people like wander aimlessly until you figure out things that are fun for you, right? Like and that, yeah. that wandering aimlessly is what we need to do. Give ourselves more space and permission. I think I, I, I really promote the idea of an individual canon. Mm-hmm. And that's something that happens in a lot of writing classes. And that didn't happen with Kit Reed. Mm-hmm is that I, the instructor will hold up a book or a story or something as this masterwork. And they often are masterworks. Right, exactly. Just off the top of your head, me. <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, I found this one. Just, it was on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's not a master book to you, if it's not what you're trying to do, 
then the idea that you should most closely approach that is not going to help you. It still might help you in some way. Yeah. But I think um, just for your own self and also for any book project to build your own personal canon is really important. Yeah. And I think that nowadays, I think particularly in academic settings, there's a lot of conversation about what the canon should be. Mm -hmm. And in the ways that people have been denied agency and access and things like that is all super true. Mm -hmm. Also, canon is something that you are holding in your head and the thing is most of us have it anyway right right anybody who's in a writing class is in a writing because class because there's some books that they love yeah yeah and so you want to think about those books are important to you and what i really do and when i teach this is what i try to get people to do is to bring in something that's crucial to you Mm -hmm. and really figure out what makes it tick don't just keep it around. Gosh, mm-hmm. I'd love to be Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's not going to help you much. But right. if you say there's the scene in Beloved where they go out into the cornfield and I think about it all the time, mm-hmm. you can go and find that scene. Mm-hmm. And you can say, oh, look, it's one long paragraph and the sentences are shaped like this. Or look, I thought I remembered it in the third person, but it's in the first person. Why do I remember it in the third person? What is, what's the mechanism that's going on there? And to really dive in and take it apart, a text that's important to you, I think can really unlock something hmm. in what you're trying to do. I'm moved right now. I feel like I should like, uh, I need to go right now. <laughs> that's the idea, yeah. Also, yeah, also you have to write things down. That's a big part of being a writer. Turns out. And, and for I think particularly when you're beginning, you want to do a lot of it. You mm-hmm. want to write down a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful forever to Kit Reed. I was an undergraduate. And when you're an undergraduate, I was taking a bunch of other classes and things like that. And 10 pages a week is a lot. That's a lot of words. Yeah. Um, but I had to do it and it made me do it. Mm-hmm. And they were terrible, of course, over and over again, horrible pages. But it was like getting those pages out of your system before yeah. you can even learn how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You, there's another question that, that, that was asked here by, by Kelly. She talks about the, the fact that you are able in your books to feel relatable. You're not talking down, like you're writing uh, books for fourth graders, but yet it doesn't feel like you're talking down to them. How did you, because again, you wrote this, as you said, I didn't know anything about writing for children. <laughs> and yet here you yeah. figured out your own style. Was it like just something that you did? Was it you, that you modeled on someone? But how did you make that work? I think because I was inter- I came at it from wanting to write literature. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted the book to be good. And there are certain things that will make a children's book better, certain right. very basic things. And also that will make it a children's book. Maybe someone will want to give their child in terms of very basic guidelines. But I didn't come at it from wanting to teach some precious lesson to the young people. (laughs) And I think a lot of children's literature starts that way. Yeah. They say, gosh, children need to learn that this is wrong or something. Resilience and and grit. Yeah. And and it doesn't, it's not born out of a place that's in love with books, but it's also, it's true. I didn't, um, I didn't have any children when I started and I didn't really know many children socially. Um, (laughs) And so I didn't have a kind of um, mindset in which I talk to them in a different voice or yeah. anything like that. Um, and fourth graders are like people. <laughs> They're Turned all kind of them. Yeah. And you can't decide that there's some way that you're going to talk to children. Any way mm-hmm. that there's, you're gonna, there's some way that you're going to talk to any other category right. Right. person. And I often feel like children are 
one of the last categories that society still thinks it's okay to talk about in large general terms. Mm-hmm. And you hear it in publishing all the time. Like, right. oh, well, this is what 10 year olds like. And yeah. you think, if you step out about any other segment of society, right, you're right. like, dude, what's wrong with you? But somehow you're like, yep, 10 year olds, they're all alike. Like crazily, later when we're all adults, we're all different and diverse and have all these different yes. backgrounds and opinions and experiences. But when we're 10, apparently we're all identical and it drives me bonkers. So I've got a, yeah, I've got a six year old. So how long till I should start reading her this one or let her read it? What's your advice here for me? She's six. Very precocious, I mean, by the way. It's really, I think in the case of Snicket, it is when irony hits. It's oh, good. My son now is 17, but when he was young, he came to a series of unfortunate events pretty late mm-hmm. because he was nervous about them. Mm. And it was obviously a more complicated issue in our household. Right, there are right. Turns out. But there was a few years where every month or so he would say, what are those books about? Hmm. And I would say, they're about these three children and they lose their parents in a terrible fire. And then they have to go live with a bad man. And he would say, no. I'm out. He would say, nope, that's not what they're about. And I'd say, yes, that is what they're about. And he would just, I think it was troubling him yeah. that the books were in the house and that his dad was involved. Everything about it seemed terrible to him. And, but he was little. And then one day, kind of the fun of irony hit him, mm-hmm. which in our household happens pretty you know, early, as you might imagine. Yeah. But I would take a walk with him when he was little. And I would say, this is, I'm having a, a lot of fun on this walk, but I'll tell you, if I see a brick, I'm going to lose my mind. And then he would point to a brick and then I would lose my mind. And so when he started to understand that was a fun game, mm-hmm. um, then he was ready to have them read. I don't know your kids. I'm sure that will be a relief to you. Um, yeah. Well, you might, but, uh, you, just, you know. Whenever, they're, whenever they feel ironic, it's good. It feels like whenever they get the uh, Alanis Morissette song, that's the moment. Then we'll know it. Uh, I wouldn't say the Alanis Morissette song, but I wonder if you, like my sister, when she had kids, for some reason, they had this game where she would, when they, they would get in the car and they would come home and they got home, my sister would say, I wonder if we've been burgled. And the kids would be like, oh, let's find out. Let's find out. And they'd all go in the house. And they'd be like, oh, no, everything's still here. Rat. That strikes me as the kind of... Um, ironic mindset that will put you in the mood for Lemony Snicket. And some people, of course, to this day will say, what a horrible thing to think when you drive up to your house. (laughs) They're not ready. Even if they're 80 years old, they're not. I think, here's what I think, particularly in the times that we're in, is that in certain ways, it's very, it's lucky times for writers. And why? Because at the core of the writing experience, just like at the core of the reading experience, is loneliness, right? Almost all of your reading you're doing by yourself. Sometimes you'll read aloud to someone, which is very intimate. That's why it happens like between families and like lovers, but not a lot of other circumstances. But mostly you're reading by yourself and that's your own experience. Mm. The thing you find the most joy, the find that horrifies you the most, that's all lonely. And also writing is like that. You can have companions and you can even sit next to someone and write, but you can't say what should the next word be and have four people all decide together. It has mm-hmm. to be lonely. And these are such lonely times. We're all cooped up with lonely times. And I think it's a great time to remember that loneliness is at the heart of literature. And so mm-hmm. if you're lonely right now, you're participating in a long literary tradition. Use your loneliness, savor it a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
to help you with your book. Okay, so maybe we should just all just make a lonely face for this. A lonely face, like a sad, lonely yeah. face. All right, everyone does a lonely, sad face right now here. This is at the words. This will be, but we'll make it look that's that's a perfect like longing. That looks like a longing face. So thank you. Lonely. I'm very good at being lonely. I'm super good at it. Everyone's lonely faces here. I'll take some clear out the window. Some people aren't very lonely. It looks like some people like look too happy. They look there's their normal faces are too happy. Lamar looks very you happy. You don't have here. to be unhappy. I think while you're being lonely, you can just be you just be in yourself. Yes. I like that. Yeah. It's, we're happy to be lonely because that means we're progressing here and, and amazing things are happening. Daniel, I uh, thank you so much. Any uh, last things for, for folks that you would send forth as your like graduation speech here where they go out and create epic works? Anything for, this is like loneliness to, to happiness to success. I usually do a little pitch for poetry. I think reading poetry is really important. Hmm. And I think that, I think particularly when you're starting out as a writer, when you're writing prose, it's something that you might lose track of because there's so many books you want to write and you're thinking about prose, but the care that poets give to the individual phrase is really good. 20 poets in this group, actually. So oh, well, uh, I don't have to pitch poetry to you. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. Um, good. Yeah. I could talk on and on about poetry. I'm trying not to do it. Poetry Magazine will give you a nice uh, student discount rate. If you want to subscribe to Poetry Magazine, for me, there's something fun about Poetry Magazine because you don't feel intimidated by it. You read a bad poem and you just think like, moving on to the next page. Whereas if you buy a book of poetry and you don't like it, you think someone on the back said it was good. It's got to be good. I got to, I don't know, there's this problem. I'm not good at it. And you, so I like reading that. And what, this morning I was reading this new book by Mark Ray. That's a really good poet. Tommy Pico, I've been reading him a lot. He's really good. Who else? Morgan Parker. Read some Morgan Parker. But there's also even, there are a bunch of apps. My uh, wife uses them. I'm not much of an apper, but my wife uses them. But they're apps that'll put a poem in front of your eyes every day, which is nice. But to try to keep poetry in your life, it's a good thing to do.